annual Academy Awards, David Letterman. Welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rookrout. And today we are celebrating the 1994 Oscars. We're going to be walking through those Best Picture nominees, which are Forrest Gump, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Pulp Fiction, Quiz Show, and The Shawshank Redemption. I think we'll have an interesting debate between the top three. I think those are very clear. I sort of agree. We'll see. But because we've done the 75 Oscars and now we're doing the 94 Oscars, how did this group of movies compare to those for you? Did you like this group better? Did you find them more rewatchable? I think overall, they're much more Academy bait than the 1975 ones were. I totally agree. I think that this group of films is really interesting because I think it really does capture the Academy in the 90s and the early 2000s. In the 70s, I think with that cross of films that we discussed we had such a variety in the films I think we're all like you said not super palatable but all made by auteurs and here we have a really interesting snapshot I think of what that year in film looked like so we have a major blockbuster success from Zemeckis and Forrest Gump the winner a Stephen King adaptation a British romantic comedy a Robert Redford drama and then we have this indie darling surprise can film festival hit Pulp Fiction. Mm -hmm. I think if you're looking back at Oscar years, this one has such a wide variety for only having five films. So this was also a year at the Oscars of Legends of the Fall, Winona Ryder's Little Women, and then Mm -hmm. The Lion King, which I think could have been put up for Best Picture easily. And I'm surprised it wasn't. I think that probably what ended up happening is that, you know, with only five slots, an animated film taking one of those is pretty rare, especially since the actor's branch is so big and they're not going to vote for an animated film with talking animals. But it had such a huge impact on Disney films, a film in that year. Can You Feel the Love Tonight? Elton John won Best Original Song for Mm -hmm. that. It won score, right? Also, Hans Zimmer won, which is also crazy because so Thomas Newman had two scores, Little Women and Shawshank. And then Alan Silvestri did Forrest Gump. So big names. Mm -hmm. Lion King picked up both of those music categories. And then just some others like The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which won costume design, Speed won a few awards. I love Speed. (laughs) I didn't know it was Academy Award winning Speed. (laughs) Right? And Ed Wood is up there. So I think overall you have these big features that have big budgets and cater to a wider audience, I would say, than the smaller One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is one of the smallest budgeted Oscar winning films, at least in the eyes of winning Best Picture. I have a fun fact coming up that brings back One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, (laughs) a similarity between Forrest Gump and that that we'll get to. My name's Forrest, Forrest Gump. Would you like a chocolate? Oh, thank you. It's funny what a young man recollects. You're the same as everybody else. You are no different. Your boy's different. Are you stupid or something? Mama says stupid is as stupid do is. And Jenny. 
I'm Forrest, Forrest Gump. So Forrest Gump had 13 nominations at the Oscars and won six. It won in picture, director, actor for Tom Hanks, adapted screenplay, editing, and visual effects. And it was also nominated in actor for Gary Sinise, cinematography, art direction, set direction, sound, sound effects, editing, makeup, and score. So many. And no Robin Wright. If you haven't seen Forrest Gump, I would imagine this is one of those best picture winners that most people have seen. I think it is very popular. It made a ton of money. And I think it is one of those films that you grow up hearing about as like Forrest Gump is one of the greatest movies of all time, whatever that means. So I think that most people have seen it. Mm -hmm. That is all to say we will be spoiling it. So Eric Roth, who wrote the screenplay, one for that is also a producer on Mank coming out <gasps> imminently. But also, he is one of the co-writers on Dune coming out not That's what soon. it is. Yeah. He's been a big name and been around for a while. And I think this story, too, that's really interesting with Eric Roth is that Forrest Gump was based on a book written by Winston Groom back in 1985. And this movie, of course, wasn't made until 1994. So... That tells you a little bit right there, like no one really wanted to make this for a while. It was kind of bounced around. People wrote drafts of it and nobody wanted it. No one wanted to make it until Eric Roth. So when he wrote it in the 90s, that's when it finally like stuck with the studio. Mm -hmm. And this is what my comparison was going to be to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I remember you talking about how no one thanked the writer Mm -hmm. of the book the same thing happened with Forrest Gump. Not one person, when it won picture, screenplay, what? actor, director, anything. No one thanked Winston Groom. Wow. Isn't that sad? I don't get that. Yeah. Everyone will thank their agents and all of these people who worked on the films and the production mm-hmm. companies. And it's like the source material, especially if they're active collaborators on a project. I don't know if he was, but that's crazy. Yeah, like, I don't know the level to which he was involved in the writing, but even still, it's like the source material that gave you so much money because this was such a big hit. Mm -hmm. You're just not going to thank him? That's so strange to me. Anyway. So just in short, if you haven't seen Forrest Gump or it's been a while, you need a refresher. The IMDb description for this film is the presidencies of Kennedy and Johnson, the events of Vietnam, Watergate, and other historical events unfold through the perspective of an Alabama man with an IQ of 75 whose only desire is to be reunited with his childhood sweetheart. That's such an odd description. That is... It's weird that they chose to focus on these events. I mean, it is this story of how Forrest meets Jenny on his first day of school on the bus, and they form this lifelong friendship and love for each other. And it's very much about historical events, but it's really how those shape and are shaped by Forrest's life. I've always been a little confused of how and why we have to see Forrest go through all of these like signifiers with these very obvious music cues. And two weeks ago, we talked about Zemeckis on our Witches Pod and a movie trade. And we talked about how one of the things that his films always have are these signature special effects. Well, the movie starts out with this feather flying through the entire city, and then it finally lands on Forrest's foot. I was like, here we go. We're starting out with some CGI whatever. (laughs) This grand score, which I really do like, but I was like, really, Uh we're 
starting with this. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't great. But in terms of the other parts of these special effects where you see him with Nixon, Kennedy, and all of these historical events that are really important for this country. And I think those are done pretty well. I think now mm-hmm. on rewatch, I've noticed some like odd things about them, but overall they stand up pretty well, which is surprising. And then I think the scenes in Vietnam are pretty cool. I think, you know, they use a mix of real and CG effects in the background. And I think that's done pretty well in terms of like a war scene. But I think my problem... So we we start out the film basically by hearing that Forrest's name came from the family's ancestor who was a founding member of the KKK. Yep. So that's our first fact of Forrest. So it's like, okay, great. And we're supposed to believe that, you know, his wonderful mama, Sally Field, named him that to teach him a lesson about, you know, life throws you curveballs, basically, which like, mm, I don't know about that. There are a couple of things that just don't age super well. And before I go into that, it's a cornball movie. It's very saccharine. It's very earnest. It almost feels like a Frank Capra movie. It's enjoyable. But because of its tone, I think it's an easy target and I can criticize it. So here we go. Well, one of the major problems that I have with it is that Forrest, he moves through all of these events and is unscathed. Then you have Jenny, who literally has only bad things happen to her. And mm-hmm. it almost feels like this strange moral lesson that Zemeckis is trying to teach us that Forrest is good. And because Forrest is good, nothing bad happens to him. And Jenny is bad. And that's why she experiences bad things. It rubs me the wrong way. And it's why I have trouble with the movie it's very like green book i don't i don't know yeah it's so on surface level i think it's easy to enjoy it and you know you can't think too deep about these things or else you're gonna find really controversial takes and we don't really want to take it all the way there (laughs) yeah this is a case where like i don't like saying this all the time but this is much more of like i'm just gonna watch this movie to feel something and to just enjoy myself for two hours if you'd go into it any further that's where it starts to unravel for me i mean so does jenny die in the end from aids is that what we're assuming I think most people do assume that. They don't completely go there, but I think it is inferred. Like it's 1981, she dies from an unknown virus because she's done heroin for X amount of years and here she is. Maybe hep C. It's just another thing he throws in there. Like what does this say about humanity or these characters in that, you know, Jenny has lived her life to the fullest and, you know, she's gone on such a journey and so is Forrest, but... That's what I mean though, I think, where it's it seems like it's being very critical of her behavior mm-hmm. when I'm not sure if that is what they're trying to do or if that is the point, but to me, watching it, you can't look past it. Right, I mean, or either, you know, they're blaming her for not having been with Forrest all these years and that's why mm-hmm. but still that doesn't make anything better <laughs> it doesn't so I don't know I, yeah I think we could probably belabor this all day <laughs> so. mm-hmm. totally I just don't like how they really frame this story around this eclectic character Forrest and basically his life happens the way it does because he's unaware of what's happening 
Yeah, it's kind of hard to be unaware of that. It is tough because I did enjoy myself watching it at times. Mm -hmm. There is, I think, a heartwarming quality to it. Besides the things that I shared that I thought were problematic with it, I think part of the reason, too, that I don't like it as well as maybe a lot of other people do is because of the Oscar history with it. When a movie that I don't love wins everything and Mm -hmm. movies that I do love don't win as much. I agree with that. We'll get into... Shawshank later but I think it was snubbed in a lot of categories here because Forrest Gump was such a sweeping hit and box office success in ways that Shawshank wasn't. So a good thing about this movie that I do want to talk about is that Tom Hanks here it was just a major flex by him truly. He won Mm back-to-back Oscars Philadelphia and then Forrest Gump and he took points for the movie. He took percentage points. He didn't take a salary so he ended up netting $40 million off of Forrest Gump. Wow. Which is crazy to think about. I think Tom Hanks is good in it. I think he works in the role. I can't really see it with anyone else besides Tom Hanks. Tom was at his peak in his career. Not that he was about to be finished, basically, as an A-list actor, but he had such hits. And then he made Forrest Gump, and that was just, like, the peak of peaks. And he did such an amazing job. I think now a lot of his films, Captain Phillips and Greyhound, they're very much Tom Hanks pieces. Like, I see him Mm -hmm. in it. And I think in Forrest, he doesn't come off like that. It is very much he became Forrest and feels like a completely different person. Yeah, I totally agree. I also love the rest of the cast, too. I mentioned Robin Wright didn't get nominated. I think she's wonderful as Jenny. Mm -hmm. Love Sally Field, always. The age difference is a little jarring between her and Tom (laughs) Hanks, if she's playing his mom. Gary Sinise in it, too, who I think you either know from Forrest Gump or CSI. That's very accurate. (laughs) (laughs) But nominated here, I do think this is the role he's best known for and he's good as lieutenant dan too so if you gave this movie one oscar what would it be so i think it has to be tom hanks for best actor that's he's the one who really stands out to me it's a tom hanks film despite my problems with it he's the one who i could comfortably say like this is an oscar i won't complain about that actually Mm -hmm. happened i do agree with that but i would give it score it's a great score you could throw on at any time i think Mm -hmm. Every time I would put on like a playlist studying, this would come up and I would always be like, oh, what is that? And it was Uh like, oh, yeah, it's Forrest Gump. The score is really good. How do you think today's Academy would receive this? So let's say Forrest Gump, as is, came out today in 2020. What's happening with it? (laughs) I think it would still be pretty adored by the Academy. I'm sure certain things about it would be different, but we've also seen some like really cringy movies come out that have been awarded recently. Do you agree? Do you not think it would do well? I do. I think that it would be one of those ones that would come out and people would be like, oh my God, this is so problematic. And thankfully for Forrest Gump, film Twitter did not exist when it came out because (laughs) this thing would get demolished on film Twitter. But that doesn't matter. The Academy doesn't care about film Twitter. The Academy, especially, you know, the older members of the Academy or people who are just looking for something sweet and above all innocent, that's what this is, right? I think Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, like this is a very innocent film that takes you through important historical events and very spot on like characters. And like you have Bear Bryant from Alabama, just 
bizarre things that they choose, but that people, when they see it, they're like, oh yeah, that's important. And I think the Academy likes feeling important and recognizing important things. And they like feeling good at the end of the day. And this movie makes you feel good. So now we'll move on to our nominees. Our next one that we will cover is Four Weddings and a Funeral. The perfect wedding requires tact. Oh, how's, that, how's that gorgeous girlfriend of yours? Oh, she's no longer my girlfriend. Still, I wouldn't get too gloomy about it. Rumor has it she never stopped bonking old Toby Delisle. She is now my wife. Inspiration. Who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Goat. Gurg. And a loving bride. Ow! Hugh Grant and Andy McDowell invite you to Four Weddings and a Funeral. Amen. It had two nominations, Best Picture and Best Original Screenplay. So the IMDb description here, over the course of five social occasions, a committed bachelor must consider the notion that he may have discovered love. This movie was written by Richard Curtis, who also wrote films like Love Actually, Notting Hill, Bridget Jones's Diary. A huge writer. And very British comedies. How did this one work for you? Because I know this was your first time watching it. So when I said I was surprised The Lion King didn't get nominated, this was one of those reasons I was like, this was nominated for Best Picture? (laughs) Like, were things that dry this year? And no, they weren't. But like, what? How did this get in here? I mean, it was a huge surprise hit in the U.S. Did very well internationally but it's so small and as an indie film and as a comedy to get in with only five nominees, that's crazy. But I will say, I think that the Academy would prefer a comedy to an animated movie, but still Mm. it is quite interesting to me that it was nominated for best picture and best screenplay, but Hugh Grant didn't get in. And I think that this is a conversation we have a lot of the time with smaller indie movies that might squeak in. And I am by no means comparing this to Parasite on a content level. But if you think about Parasite, none of the actors were nominated. And it was nominated for Best Picture. And I think so frequently when movies like this do sneak in and are international phenomenons, somehow it's like, oh, did the movie not have actors in it to get it where it needed to go? I I don't understand. So I think there are genres that are usually omitted from the Oscars and like rom-com and horror, Mm -hmm. I think, are the top two. Mm -hmm. So again, this surprises me. I think this was like big inspiration for Love Actually. Mm -hmm. And Hugh is so young in this movie he's so cute sorry (laughs) this is really what made him popular and what brought him to the u.s and i think he's like the quintessential non-committal anti-marriage millennial character that i feel Mm. like a lot of people would connect to today but certainly i don't know it was a little frustrating watching all this happen I think that what is interesting about it is it does have an ingenious structure to the plot, I think. Mm -hmm. Having four weddings and a funeral. Very clear title. You know exactly what you're going to get. (laughs) You're going to go to these five events. And I love the British humor, and I think that that worked well for me. But I think the reason why it doesn't soar as a romantic comedy for me, and I love romantic comedies, is because of Andy McDowell. I think she's just the wrong choice for... Or the lead opposite Hugh Grant. Oh, wow. Okay. Because she doesn't fit that character or... I'm going to say something I normally don't like to say, but <laughs> I don't think she's a good actress. I think she kind of has this like Jennifer Lawrence crudeness 
almost to her in this movie and i think that plays with how like infatuated hugh is with her and the fact that he can't have her but she's also this american who has shown up to these weddings and kind of does what she wants and doesn't really play by the rule book i don't not like her in this movie I don't think that's why I don't like it. I also went into this movie thinking it was my best friend's wedding. Oh. <laughs> and I was waiting and waiting for, what's the song? I say a little prayer for you. I was waiting oh. so long for that to happen. And I was like, oh, wait, this is the wrong movie. <laughs> oh, my God. My best friend's wedding is actually a great segue because I watched Notting Hill before I had seen Four Weddings and a Funeral. So I think that like Julia Roberts is so perfect in Notting Hill in that part. And she, it's not the writing of the character that is wrong for me. Like I like characters like the Andy McDowell character in Four Weddings and a Funeral. I think they're interesting despite being a little awful sometimes. But I think like I wanted a movie star in the part or an actress who could really carry it like Julia Roberts does in Notting Hill. Like an Audrey Hepburn type of person. I think that if that actress had been better or had been right for the part, there would have been a little spark in the romance and I didn't really believe their romance. And I also like to be fair, in other movies that she's in, I'm I'm not usually a fan either. Like St. Elmo's Fire. Well, she just came off of Groundhog's Day, which I think was probably what propelled her for this role. That too. So Julia is nine years younger than Andy. So I think that would have been tough. But I do agree that I think think she has this like bad girl attitude that would have played in this role you just need someone who can carry that type of part and I think like Rachel McAdams her character is kind of like this in about time he really likes having the man be British and the woman be American in a lot of his films he's mm-hmm. done this quite a few times in most of their cases I think it works but there's something about Andy McDowell in the role that just doesn't work for me and that was my biggest barrier I think to liking it because on paper I should really love this movie but I don't and I think it's because of her casting so if you could give four weddings and a funeral one oscar what would you give it don't get so excited (laughs) god (laughs) might have to come back to me in a little bit (laughs) (laughs) i mean it could be for screenplay i would give it something that it was nominated for i think it's Mm -hmm. fun and different in a way that rom-coms usually aren't so i did like that aspect to it yeah that would be my pick too i think it's it's fresh it's funny very british i love the humor in it so i think i would give it best original screenplay to take a little break we're gonna do nom or bomb with movies with weddings in them it's fair to say i'll have seen a little bit more because i'm the (laughs) rom-com person here but i tried to add some dramas in the mix but there aren't too many (laughs) okay 27 dresses you have definitely seen this i've maybe seen like parts of this with Katherine heigl and james marston yeah i know what it is but like i uh, i mean bomb i this is like the type of movie i really don't care for i'm gonna say nom (laughs) (laughs) okay i think it's cute and fun and completely ridiculous that it is Next up is The Wedding Planner. It has to be a bomb. I know that my sister who's listening is going to be really mad and be like, you're a liar. You love The Wedding Planner, which I do, but I have to say it's a bomb, despite having J-Lo and Matthew McConaughey. But if it is on cable, I will watch it. Again, I think I've seen parts of this. I will abstain for this because I really don't know. I would probably just say bomb again, so I'll (laughs) stay neutral. Okay. Okay. The Hangover. I'll say nom for this. Only The Hangover, not two or three or however many there are. But this one was pretty good. Okay. Nom for me too. It obviously doesn't age very well, but 
was a phenomenon mm-hmm. at the time and I did right. really like it. Wedding Crashers? Nom. Yeah. <laughs> this is iconic. I I love it. This is a nom for me. Another Bradley Cooper movie. Was this like his breakthrough role too? This as... was when he was like really starting to be typecast as the asshole. <laughs> Because you have The Hangover, Wedding Crashers. (laughs) Like, those are pretty close. Before Wedding Crashers, he was obviously in Alias. Yeah, I mean, this was kind of his breakthrough for movies. I still know what he looks like in this movie, and he is very young. Yeah, that's all I'm going to say about that. Melancholia. I have a poster of this up in my room. This is a nom for me. Me too. Yes. I watched it again at the beginning of quarantine. Love it. So good. Lars von Trier, Kirsten Dunst. Amazing. Ghost of Girlfriends Past. I have no idea what this is. Hardcore bomb. (laughs) Matthew McConaughey, Jennifer Garner. One of the worst movies I've ever seen in theaters for sure. Oof. Okay, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. You have to have seen this. Oh, this is, yeah. I've rewatched this. <laughs> this is a nom. So much fun. So good. Another phenomenon that, like, this indie film that really took off. I'm pretty sure, have to fact check this, but I think it was the longest running indie. A theater run? A theater run, yeah. So it was the highest grossing romantic comedy of all time. It was the only movie to gross so much without reaching number one until Sing came out in 2016. Which is a oh weird God. feat. So strange. It grossed $368 million. That's insane. For a $5 million budget, that's that's wild. I mean, it was the hit no one saw coming, which is cool. So it had one of the longest theatrical runs for a film in the home video era. It played for 52 weeks. 28 wow. were in wide release, which is 600 or more theaters. And it played 11 weeks longer than Titanic. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm like nuts. <laughs> it's just so much fun. I mean, I could put this on tonight and watch it. It's it's great. Next up is about time. Nom, for sure. 100% nom. Always makes me cry. Okay, Mamma Mia. This is trash, but I'll give it a nom. It is so, it's again, just like fun, wild stupidity. Me too. I would also give it a nom. Also, Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, which I love. Oh, ama- amazing. Yeah. Starting out with Waterloo, I can't. Because of Lily James, Christine Baranski. So good. The Ghost of Meryl Streep. Okay, I haven't seen this, but Father of the Bride. So good. No, it's a Nancy Myers. Okay, The Philadelphia Story. Oh my God, I don't think I've seen this either. Really? Oh, this is so maybe good. Part- Jimmy Stewart's Oscar, Catherine Hepburn's in it, Cary Grant. It's it's beautiful. I love it. Okay, Crazy Rich Asians. Nom. so much fun. Mm-hmm. Um, for me very like glittery and beautiful everything you want from a wedding movie i would watch this again this was like definitely the blockbuster hit of 2018 yeah all right and last but not least bridesmaids just the best yes a nom so good nom for me for sure on to our third film quentin tarantino's pulp fiction amazing I do believe Marcellus, my husband, your boss, told you to take me out and do whatever I wanted. I love you so much, can't count on you. Whether or not you can maintain loyalty. 
night of the fight, you may feel a slight sting. Pride only hurts, it never helps. In the fifth, your ass goes down. I have to say, play with matches, you get burned. We should have shotguns with this kind of deal. We're in a lot of danger, aren't we? I'm prepared to scout the earth for that night. Nominated for seven Oscars, it won original screenplay, and it was also nominated for picture, director for Quentin, actor for John Travolta, supporting actor for Samuel L. Jackson, supporting actress for Uma Thurman, and editing. And it's about the lives of two mob hitmen, a boxer, a gangster and his wife, and a pair of diner bandits intertwined in four tales of violence and redemption. How do you feel about this movie? I love it deeply. Is that how you feel about it? So it's just kind of in this lore of film of being so iconic. And I hadn't Mm -hmm. seen it in so long. And rewatching it, I was like, wow, this is an amazing movie. Mm -hmm. I forgot about how he jumbles the timeline even better than maybe Christopher Nolan can. Oh, duh. (laughs) Please. (laughs) The Academy rightly nominated basically the entire cast and everyone's amazing you have great scenes iconic moments and the script is just out of this world I think Quentin really hit it out of the park for one of his first films I mean this is one of those where I can't say enough good things about it and I think that it really does have a remarkable screenplay the first time I watched it I was in high school and the dialogue I think went a little over my head of why it was so cool that he was really good at writing dialogue that felt just like a regular conversation that made these people who are part of this underbelly of LA feel so real and feel so human and it is similar to how I felt about Nashville I'm sorry to bring that up again but of just these seemingly regular conversations that make your characters feel more realistic and Uh what I did get in my first watch though and that I still got now in the rewatch is it is just undeniably cool I mean it's one of the coolest movies I think that when you're introduced to it and when you rewatch it it really does just knock you out with these pop culture references that are used and the unique timeline and the humor and the violence and and the fact that Quentin has made so many great movies since Pulp Fiction, but this is still, I would say, in my top three, says a lot about it. I think it's just framed so beautifully. The opening scene in this diner where this man and this woman are discussing, you know, robbing the place. And then as the story goes along, you're swept into different characters' lives. And then at one point they all converge basically and then Mm -hmm. you understand like that things have been happening in different timelines and that throws you for a loop you know the initial dialogue and then that second scene we get Samuel Jackson and John Travolta driving and talking about cheeseburgers but not only is it such an iconic line (laughs) Le Royale but it's just so fun to watch even though it's like meaningless exactly it it hits on those like little conversations that you would just have if you were driving in a car and Quentin loves driving scenes I love driving scenes of just people hanging out in a car and I think too another thing that Quentin is really good at is the comeback of a big actor we just had in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood he did this with Brad Pitt where you know Brad hadn't been in a really good movie in a while and he brought him back into this movie star part and here we have John Travolta he does the same thing with him here where you know of course everyone knows him from Grease and from Saturday Night Fever and my favorite of his Blow 
blowout. But I think that here, he just totally brings him back into the conversation. And he's so good at doing that. And I think it's one of the most underrated talents of Quentin Tarantino. Before I get to Quentin's performance, do you have a, like a favorite part or a favorite fact about the movie? I really love the scene where Uma Thurman and John Travolta meet and they have like the dance contest and that that whole Mm -hmm. sequence. Uma Thurman is just also great in this movie. Nominated but lost to Diane Wiest for Bullets Over Broadway. Have you seen Bullets Over Broadway? No, I haven't. I love her. But Bullets Over Broadway is interesting because it's a Woody Allen movie that just did really well with the Oscars. Like it got mm-hmm. quite a few nominations, seven. Wow. I think it's a lesser known Woody Allen movie ultimately. But interesting that I think looking back, I wonder if people would have given it to Uma Thurman instead. I think Uma's amazing. When I saw her performing, I was like, wow. I f- you know, I, I don't think we have a ton from her, which I mean, I haven't seen her since Nymphomaniac Part 2. I think and then obviously Kill Bill but Mm -hmm. I think even between those two performances she's like very fresh in this role and one fun fact that I absolutely loved reading about was that this dance was copied identically from Fellini's Eight and a Half. That is so cool. Totally threw me. When you learn about things like that, I think because every time I've rewatched it, I'm just like, oh, this scene is just so much fun and so interesting. And you get to see these actors play off each other in such a fun way. But then when you learn little things like that, it's just Mm -hmm. because Quentin is such an obsessive movie watcher and just loves the film going experience. You find out that he puts things like that into his films and it just makes them that much richer and your viewing experience just better every single time. And that's just, I love that. I mean, I just really think think this whole scene plays out so perfectly from them meeting and they're kind of like flirting this entire night they go and get dinner Mm -hmm. and they're dancing and they win and you know John Travolta's like oh you know what do I do now and he's talking to himself meanwhile Uma has snorted heroin and is almost seizing out dying on the floor and then it turns into this whole other scene where he ends up stabbing her with some adrenaline to bring her back to life which is nuts The other thing that I thought was interesting was that Michelle Pfeiffer was supposed to play the Uma Thurman part, Hmm. which I could see, but I think I just associate Uma Thurman with everything Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, I don't think Michelle Pfeiffer's edgy enough for this kind of role. So going back to Quentin, which I think up till now, maybe he would love our discussion and now he might want to throw us out the window, but his performance has not aged well. I mean, he says the N-word multiple times and I was like oh please stop yeah it's it's not great (laughs) but I think the rest of that scene plays out really well it was interesting to read that Quentin wanted to be in the movie but he couldn't decide which character and he had chosen this character so instead of playing Jimmy I believe who is the drug dealer whose apartment Vincent takes Mia to and then injects her earlier so he he chose to play this character instead because he wanted to be behind the camera during that scene where Mia is like going nuts with this needle in her chest yeah that's really interesting I did not know that I mean the other big question to this movie is like what's in the case I think the mystery behind this is great but it's just fun 
fun how he uses it as this MacGuffin plot device where it's like whatever you think it is, you know, he really leaves it up to the audience and he never really reveals. There are some fun theories behind what it is. There's one where they think it's Marcellus Wallace's soul being kept in the box. The story is that the devil takes a person's soul out of the back of their head and the band-aid on his head is right where this would be. I think Tarantino might have negated that theory, but he just says it's up to the viewer. You know, it's just a fun thing to play with. You have this like gold shimmering. I always thought it was like gold bars. I think too, again, like Quentin being such a big lover of cinema, adding something like that in and knowing Mm -hmm. how viewers will respond to it and they'll create all of these theories. And you mentioned Nolan. I will not be mean again, but I think it's what's interesting is that Quentin's movies have similar viewing experiences after them where you do talk with whoever you watched the movie with about your theories about it and why he set up the structure in certain ways and I found an infographic of how to follow the timelines yeah (laughs) which reminded me a lot of Tenet yeah (laughs) (laughs) from when we looked at the infographics for that because you can think of how you could watch it chronologically because of how Quentin has set it up but I think it is like after you watch it if you times pretty easy to figure out and it has a purpose very much so which is good so I do want to talk a little bit about awards I think this might be the place where we talk about some snubs Samuel L. Jackson not winning best supporting actor here is so egregious I do not understand it at all. And Martin Landau won for Edwood. I don't know who that is. So I watched these Oscars today on YouTube, and his speech is just like a cheese moment. He thanks a film <laughs> critic in it. Like, it's just... <laughs> And I think, you know, if we did like the five-year, 10-year Oscars, whatever, Mm -hmm. I think Sam Jackson is the easy choice here. I think he's just fabulous in the movie, and I think it's sad that he didn't win. He's amazing, and... I think he's just critical to the story. And this was the first time they worked together. And he's basically in like every movie they do together. I mean, truly the only name that pops out on this list of nominated supporting actors is Samuel Jackson, apart from Gary Sinise, but like by far. And Martin Landau hadn't won before. So this was very much a case of his time to win. But wow. I mean, it's just as strange. Pulp Fiction, of course, didn't win Best Picture didn't win Best Director. Like, it almost went home empty-handed besides original screenplay. You know, it won at Cannes. It did really well at film festivals, especially New York. We had a case, I think, similar to Goodfellas when we talked about that, where I think it was just too bloody and inventive for the Academy. I mean, this won the top award at Cannes. It won the Palme d'Or, which is crazy. It's entirely way too controversial and abrasive for the Academy. I mean, they say the F word 265 times. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's like enough said on how Wolf of Wall Street did. Like, Mm -hmm. again, so I understand why it didn't. And I'm glad it won screenplay at least, but it's a shame. So if you could give this one Oscar, what would you give it? I would have to go with screenplay. I mean, I think there's a case for Quentin in director, but like hands down, I gave this earlier to Four Weddings and a Funeral, but like 
I will take that back and please give it to Pulp Fiction. <laughs> yeah, the screenplay is amazing. It's so sharp, so new and unique. And it's part of the reason why I would give best director to Quentin Tarantino. So that will be mine. Okay. I think that just what he does here and the fact that this was his second feature that he directed after Reservoir Dogs. I think the way that he takes these you know, little vignettes of different characters and organizes their stories and links everything together. I think it's groundbreaking. I think it's just, it is that good. People tell you to watch this for a reason. I think it's interesting looking at actual nominations and that one, this was Samuel Jackson's only nomination still. Oh my God. I did not realize that. And then for Quentin, this is one of his two wins. He's, he was nominated here and then wasn't nominated again until Inglorious Bastards 15 years later. And then I think since then, he's almost had every film, if not nominated for. But he's never won that Best Director Oscar. No. Nope. He's only ever lucky with screenplay. Yeah. Did he say who is retiring or no? So he said he's just going to make 10 movies. So Once Upon a Time yeah. in Hollywood was number nine. So Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think that can happen or should happen but I think Mm -hmm. he needs to go for that directing Oscar I think so too even though I think like the screenplay Oscar is like the cool kids Oscar like I think all the best movies win that but I think I would love to see him get best director okay movie number four we have quiz show stand by going to air stand by film stand by music stand by now three two one and fade up Geritol presents the exciting quiz program 21 Give me the name of the explorer who discovered Mozambique. Vasco da Gama? Correct, for 10 points. Stemple is an underdog. People root for that. Sure, wasn't Herbie terrific? Have you seen the ratings? I'd like you to meet next week's challenger, Charles Van Dorn. Oh. How much do they pay instructors up at Columbia? $86 a week. Do you have any idea how much Bozo the Clown makes? Gotta be James J. Braddock. Correct, you have 21. Is this guy a natural or what? He's a natural. (laughs) $20,000. What if we would ask you questions that you know? Well, I think I'd really rather try to beat him honestly. Just an idea. Was that part of the test? So again, another movie (laughs) that I was surprised got nominated. (laughs) It was nominated for four Oscars for picture, director, supporting actor for Paul Schofield, and adapted screenplay. It's about a young lawyer, Richard Goodwin, who investigates a potentially fixed game show. Was this your first time seeing this movie? It was actually my first time seeing it. So all the others I'd seen before, but this one I had heard of, but it just never, I think, carried a big enough reputation for me to think I have to watch Quiz Show and no one had recommended it to me before (laughs) and I, I didn't seek it out, but I was pleasantly very surprised. I actually really liked it. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's based on a true story, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's a fine movie. I just, you know, ask me to name the nominees for the 1995 Oscars and I'll be like, one, two, three, four, and what was the last one? <laughs> and quiz show. <laughs> but I think John Torturo has such a good performance here. Who is Paul Schofield? Oh, he's the dad? Mm-hmm. What? He got nominated? Yeah. Wow. That's, Isn't that? It's interesting wild. that he was the one and not John Turturro because he's so no. good. I really, really liked him. And even, honestly, I feel like they would pick Ray Fiennes right. over Paul Schofield. Paul Schofield is good in it, too, but it's just an odd choice, I think, for if you're going to pick one. Another one where it's tough with who would you put as lead actor or would you put them all supporting? Because I think they're mm-hmm. all pretty much in it equally, but... 
I would almost put Totoro in lead if it came to that, which I understand why he wasn't nominated in that case, you know, Mm -hmm. because you have Tom Hanks and Morgan Freeman and Paul Newman and John Travolta. It's like the category was stacked. So I thought it was just a nice, solid drama. And it's one of those where, wow, they don't they don't make them like this anymore. (laughs) You know, (laughs) And that's kind of how I felt watching this. I, I love a Robert Redford movie. I, and obviously, you know, I prefer ordinary people to most films. But I think you said you were surprised that it made it in. And I think, though, that it was directed by Robert Redford. And he's so famous. Right. And he'd already won a Best Director Oscar. It has a good cast. I think it feels like an Oscar winner because it's about a topic that the people in the industry would care about. It's about show business, you know, Mm -hmm. not show businesses film, but game shows. And while we're here, we also have to say today, our day of recording RIP to the great giant Alex Trebek. Yeah. That's (sighs) so devastating. I think how like his diagnosis and everything is played out is just so Mm -hmm. heartbreaking, but you know, he wanted to fight on and continue to host and, I was on the Sony lot one day and got to pass the Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy lots. And I was like, oh, how cool. And that was like his entire career. I was really sad when I saw that this morning. That's so sad. What this movie does really well and what I was thinking about today with Alex Trebek was that, you know, game shows have this way that they create community across audiences everywhere, especially I think ones that are like quiz shows, because, you know, you want to see if you know the correct answers and if you can get it right. And I think that this taps into that idea of like, okay, are we creating TV stars or are we actually celebrating intelligence? And I think that Jeopardy was always one of those TV shows that really celebrated being smart and being nerdy and thinking that learning was cool. And that's what I always loved about Jeopardy as a kid and watching it pretty religiously. Mm -hmm. And I think with Quiz Show, I thought it was cool to think back on how TV might have been during the 50s. Back then, a lot of these shows actually were rigged that was actually something that happened and why did that happen it was because you know the the 50s was all about like these traditional american values and what the home looked like and everything had to reflect that i mean it was legal for television shows to do this there weren't laws preventing any of this even though they were basically giving away money which doesn't make sense but this was also basically the start of television and a big way for families at home to connect and tune in and to get to boost their numbers. And I think that goes along with what you're saying is it's fun to watch this today where we see people on TV wanting to become celebrities because mm-hmm. they were on a show. I mean, this doesn't even speak to like Big Brother or The Bachelor or mm-hmm. you know, reality shows. This is a game show right. with these people becoming celebrities. And I think that is exactly where we still are in terms of television and pop culture and history. And I think, too, you have John Turturro, who's Jewish, and Ray Fiennes, who's very waspy. And Ray Fiennes, of course, is the one that they want to put on TV. <laughs> so and the way that they address it in the movie is it's interesting and unexpected, like I said. But one thing that I thought was strange in the movie and researching it was that the Van Doren family, Ray Fiennes' character, they weren't cooperative in the filming 
process. So I think in some other movies where you might get a deeper look at what the family's going through and how it might have affected them. This one, you really don't. I think Robert Redford does the best with what he has, but I think that is an area where it's lacking a little bit, maybe. Going off of that, there's a fun fact that Ray Fiennes really wanted to hear how Charles Van Doren spoke. And since they didn't want to help with the film, he ended up driving to Connecticut where Van Doren lives, found him outside his house and acted like a lost driver just so he could ask him and see how he spoke. Oh my God. (laughs) It's a little stalkery. (laughs) That's so spooky. (laughs) Really committed to the bit there. Yeah. Another favorite fact of mine is that Martin Scorsese is in this movie. So he didn't direct it, but he is acting in it, which when I saw him, I I was like, oh my God, Marty. I loved his line. He goes, Queens is not New York. (laughs) Yes. screamed when I saw that. And Marty, of course, is from Queens. Oh, I love it. Which is even better. It's so funny. So I recommend Quiz Show overall. So I'm saying this, I think, because the other movies, especially the one we're about to talk about next, people know them. They're on TV all the time. Mm -hmm. They've been recommended to you. They're on the tops of lists. And Quiz Show might be that forgotten one. But I think it's a good little gem. It has some relevant themes that I think really are important today. I would recommend watching this. I know I kind of made fun of it a little earlier. (laughs) I think it's still a fun movie. It's... You know, my other favorite thing about it is that every time I hear the movie Marty, I'll always remember that it's a 1955 film and it's because of this movie. (laughs) It's one of the few Best Picture nominees. I mean, we'd have to go through them and check, but that actually mentions the Oscars and specifically Best Picture. So it's a fun little tidbit. So if you gave this movie one Oscar, what would you give it? I would give John Turturro Best Supporting Actor. Even though he wasn't nominated, that's where I would go. Yeah, I was going to say that too. He deserves one. We're in agreement. We're so in agreement today. (laughs) That might be about to change. We'll see. So far. Okay, so our next nominee is The Shawshank Redemption, which I will say outright, I love. I'm prepared to be made fun of by whoever wants to make fun of me about it. I love it so much. Send you here for life. That's exactly what they take. I believe in two things. Discipline. Help me, God! In the Bible. Here you'll receive both. Andy came to Shawshank Prison in 1947. Why'd you do it? I didn't, since you asked. <laughs> you can fit right in. I must admit, I didn't think much of Andy the first time I laid eyes on him. He had a quiet way about him walk or talk that just wasn't normal around here. There are places in the world that aren't made out of stone. There's something inside that they can't touch. What are talking about? Hope. Let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Damn it, dude, friend, you're putting me behind. Hope can drive a man insane. You better be sick or dead in there, I kid you not. Better get used to that idea. Oh, my holy God. I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really. Get busy living. Get busy dying. It was nominated for seven Oscars. It won zero, which is so sad. I hate Wild. when that happens. That's just, just like insane. Lady Bird. So it was nominated for Picture, Best Actor for Morgan Freeman, Best Adapted Screenplay, 
Best Cinematography for V. Roger Deakins. Best Sound, Best Editing. The movie was edited by Richard Francis Bruce, who was also nominated for Seven for Editing. Seven's low nomination. And Score. It was directed by Frank Darabont. So if you haven't seen it, I think you should skip because we will definitely be talking about the ending and how crazy (laughs) it is. But generally the plot, we have two imprisoned men who bond over a number of years, finding solace and eventual redemption through acts of common decency. Again, these descriptions are, you know, a little (laughs) odd, but (laughs) it works, I suppose. And another fact about it. It is the top-rated film on IMDb's Top 250. Which is, I think, a big feat. It's, it's again, on a number of lists, as are a couple of these movies. So in college, I had watched the entire Top 250 in, like, I remember when year. you did this. Yeah, I'm just, like, a nerd. But Shawshank has sat atop that list for years and years. I don't know how long. And then I think The Godfather and Godfather Part 2 are number two and three. I mean, people love this movie, and I also love this movie. So I think, again, it's Academy bait. You know, Mm -hmm. it's very sentimental. It plays on your heartstrings, and it's an emotional roller coaster. Is this another true story? This is based on a short story by Stephen King. Okay, that's right. This is a surprising Stephen King adaptation, I guess I will say. Mm -hmm. I think Stephen King's best adaptations sometimes are ones that aren't full horror, I mean, I love The Shining, but that is, it's almost not an adaptation of his work because it feels so different from the book. But I love like Stand By Me, Shawshank. I feel like those are mm-hmm. really good Stephen King adaptations where movies like It and Salem's Lot, I'm just like, no. It's just his material doesn't always translate well to the screen, but I think here it really works. And this is his favorite adaptation of his own work. It was also a bomb. It did horribly at the box office. I'm shocked when I read this. I can't believe it only made $28 million. I think part of the problem is the title because I think the title is weird. It's like Shawshank. Like what, what is that? I think if it were called something else, it would maybe have done better. It's also a hard sell, like prison movies. Like you know you're going to be in a prison for that long. It was a little depressing. I mean, I read this too that they blamed like the sad setting and the title as the reasons for this. Which don't make sense to me. I don't know. It's like, does a title really affect if you're going to go see it or not? Maybe not for us, but like for the average person. I think yes. But like, does the Shawshank Redemption really sound like, oh, this sounds like a bad movie. I'm not going to go see it. I don't think it sounds like a bad movie, but I think it's just confusing. If you don't know what Shawshank is. So we have to mention that all the exterior shots took place at the Ohio State Reformatory in Mansfield, Ohio. Indeed. Have you been? Iconic. I don't think so. You know, I always heard that at Halloween time, they would turn it into a haunted house. And I was like, absolutely not. Never in a million years would you get me to pay to go into this prison as a haunted house. No. You're smarter than me. Oh my God, you went? Yeah, I've been before. Oh my God. Um, It's horrifying. It's it's really scary. I went in high school. If you're into like haunted house, scary stuff, do it. It's really fun if you're able to. But it is, I mean, it's horrifying. I don't like messing with that stuff normally and probably won't again. But part of the reason I went was because of Shawshank. This movie did really poorly at the box office, but I think it did have such a long life afterwards because of Cable. 
this movie's always on like TNT or stars or something like that. And that's actually how I stumbled upon it originally Mm -hmm. was I was homesick from school and it was just starting and I just, I loved it so much. And I think I was at that very impressionable age where you watch some movies because you hear that they're good and because you hear they're good, you think they're good. And that's this whole learning experience for you. But this one in particular, it moved me. And I think that's why I always will have a soft spot for it. And I know I talk about how like I don't like sappy movies and all that, but some are just beyond me. They really, they work too hard and I just fall victim to them and cry. I think it really does play on every single emotion. You're frustrated half the time. You get really happy for them. You want to cry. And I think it takes you all over the place, which is why, again, it's a good movie. It kind of can appeal to anybody. The last line in the movie is hope as you know Morgan is giving his voice over and I think that's what this movie is overwhelmingly about and why it has stood the test of time it's interesting to note that this was Morgan Freeman's first voiceover that he ever did for a movie mm-hmm. and he has like been a staple at this since <laughs> this moment it is and there are so many great quotes in this movie get busy living or get busy dying hope is a dangerous thing hope can drive a man insane those are all like morgan Mm -hmm. freeman voiceovers we're going to talk about the ending now so again another warning here so if this movie is 40 minutes left and it's on tv i will cancel an appointment i will tell a friend i will be late (laughs) like i am watching it because there's just something about it where it is just so moving where I I will just cry instantly. It's such a good portrait of platonic love and friendship between Mm -hmm. Andy and Red, between Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman. So the ending, yes, he goes to the wall where Andy told him to go and he finds a letter from Andy and some money. And that's when Red decides that he's going to go find Andy in Mexico. And once Morgan Freeman's voice over starts in that moment and the music just swells (laughs) i start sobbing i mean i get emotional at everything in movies and i don't think i got that choked up over the ending i mean it's heartwarming but i don't think i was like bawling oh my god this and field of dreams are my if you put it on there will not be a dry eye the part that always makes me cry so right after he finds the letter you hear the Morgan Freeman voiceover and he says I find I'm so excited I can barely sit still or hold a thought in my head I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel a free man at the start of a long journey whose conclusion is uncertain I hope I can make it across the border I hope to see my friend and shake his hand I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams I hope It's just so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And of course, just like the idea of these two men who've been locked away in prison for so long and who were in just this pure hell of a situation, being able to make it out and find each other again. I just, it just moves me. I think that my like one criticism would be this movie does not pass the Bechtel test. (laughs) There are no women in the movie really at all. I did notice when I was watching it the last time that I think if a woman would have been in the movie, I don't think Andy would have escaped. Escaped. 
Andy's whole plot to escape hinges on the fact that he switches shoes with the warden. Mm -hmm. So he walks out in these different shoes and no one notices. And if a woman was working in that prison, we always notice men's shoes. (laughs) And he would have been caught right away. Okay, well. It was Frank Darabont's first movie and it really was just this very troubled production from the get-go. He apparently wanted to make a movie like Goodfellas, but was really worried that his inexperience would get in the way. So he would watch Goodfellas like every night when he would go home. I think another fun fact was that, you know, Tom Hanks, amongst many others, were going to play Andy, but he was wrapped up with Forrest Gump, so he couldn't. But Tom played in Frank's next film, which was in 1989 with The Green Mile, which was another Stephen King novella prison adaptation, which is kind of crazy. I love Tim Robbins in the part. He has the affect that you're looking for with Andy. Like he's mm-hmm. super tall, very quiet. I think he's more hardened too than Tom Hanks, who you wouldn't really believe to be a murderer, you know, which plays into the story of is he guilty? Is he innocent? And I think with Tim Robbins, you question it more whether he is or not. He's totally innocent. I'm just saying. It was kind of funny. SNL last night mentioned The Shawshank Redemption. Did you watch it all? Oh, did they? No, I haven't watched it. It was a really good show, but during the Weekend Report, Colin Jost mentioned that right now it feels like the scene where they're on the rooftop drinking a beer and, you know, Mm -hmm. just for this moment, things feel okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's actually really true. It's like breathing a sigh of relief. And then tomorrow we get to work with our rock hammers. Exactly. Go right back to it. (laughs) So if you could give this movie one off, Oscar, what would it be? So before I answer, let's talk about, do we agree with Forrest Gump winning Best Picture? Or would you give it to something else? I don't agree with it getting Best Picture. Would you give it to Shawshank? I would give it to Shawshank. Okay. You know, if I gave it one Oscar, it would be Picture. Yeah, I think that this one to me is, it is Oscar bait. It has great performances in it, but it's not this treacly thing that Forrest Gump is. And I think part of the problem too is like Forrest won everything. Yeah, and we kind of hate to see that here. I wish Shawshank would have gotten something. I think out of the adapted screenplay category, I don't know, I would almost favor Shawshank over Forrest Gump, but also Forrest has like iconic lines, so I get that. I read this really funny thing, speaking of Forrest in the screenplay, that an industry like insider who was unnamed said at the time, but I was cracking up, which is that the truth is, if you open a box of chocolates, you know exactly what you're going to get. <laughs> And that's why he wasn't voting for Forrest. (laughs) Oh my God, that's funny. I mean, I would just change up every category. Picture goes to Shawshank. Director goes to... Quentin. Quentin. We can leave Adapted and give it to Forrest. And then Original also goes to Pulp Fiction. Actor? There's a good lineup here. Tom Hanks, Morgan Freeman, Paul Newman for Nobody's Fool. I actually like Nobody's Fool. And I think this would be a good time to give Paul Newman an acting Oscar. And then John Travolta, of course, in Pulp Fiction. I haven't seen The Madness of King George, Mm-mm. what Nigel Hawthorne was nominated for, but that's a pretty solid lineup. I think I would leave Tom Hanks here and then give it to Samuel Jackson. 
and supporting. Best actress is interesting. So Jessica Lange won for Blue Sky, which I love Jessica Lange, but I've never seen Blue Sky. The only movie on this list that I've seen is Little Women. Jodie Foster was nominated for Nell, which I've heard is not good. Miranda Richardson and Tom and Viv, which makes me think of Bon and Viv the seltzer. Bon and Viv. <laughs> like, is that where they got the name? <laughs> Did they get the name from this? Oh my God, I saw that and I was like, what? Oh my God, that's so funny. <laughs> Winona Ryder was nominated for Little Women and Susan Sarandon was nominated for The Client. Maybe the 90s are my blind spot. Yeah, these names are beyond iconic and I haven't seen a single one of these movies. You haven't seen The Little Women? Mm-mm. Mm. Greta's was the first Little Women I saw. Oh, wow. That's interesting. This one's good. Christian Bale is Lori. So naturally, I was into it. I, I do want to watch. There are so many good actresses in that movie I need to watch. Uh-huh. So Best Supporting Actress, I'll mention again because Diane Weist won for Bullets Over Broadway, but we talked about last week vote splitting and Jennifer Tilly was also nominated for Bullets Over Broadway, but mm-hmm. Diane Weist still won oh. despite potential vote split. Wow. Beating Uma Thurman for Pulp Fiction, who I would say was probably running next. That is really surprising, yeah. I need to watch that movie. And then Rosemary Harris for Tom and Viv and Helen Mirren for The Madness of King George. Yeah, I have no idea what The Madness of King George is, but it's like a big contender here. Another movie that I really love that should have won multiple Oscars, but did not, it was only nominated for Best Editing, is Hoop Dreams. Have you seen Hoop Dreams? Mm -mm. It's amazing. I'm going to plug it for a minute because I feel like people probably haven't seen it, but it is this wonderful documentary that came out in 94. So it follows these two black teenagers who live in different parts of predominantly black neighborhoods in inner city Chicago and they travel to go to this predominantly white high school that has a really good basketball program. So it's all about their families and their journeys and the obstacles that they face in in trying to achieve this dream of going to the NBA. It's really worth the watch. Docs I feel like are super easy to watch too. Like watch it in a sitting or two and if you had to ask me what my favorite was from the year, it's definitely up there. It's also on Canopy apparently. I would definitely go watch this oh one other thing i'll say about the oscars so when i watched them today david letterman hosted these oscars and his (laughs) hosting was critically panned people really didn't like it and it's still been this like issue that he talks about years later that he hated hosting and thought he did a bad job and other people you know thought his jokes fell flat and they kind of do i have to say but (laughs) it definitely feels more late night than i think oscars in the past but definitely more of what we've pivoted to in the future having people like Jimmy Kimmel host so it didn't mm-hmm. feel out of place to me as someone who's watched a lot of the recent shows but I can see at the time where it would feel strange and despite having Letterman it is a pretty boring show there isn't a lot of excitement going on at the show itself I think overall a good crop of movies they like we said at the beginning I think are a really interesting look at 1994 as a movie year and what came out that year I think they got a good spread of movies in there whether or not they picked the right ones you can decide when you watch them what you think So next week on Oscar Wilde, we'll be again debuting a new type of pod for you. We'll be giving you the Oscar Wilde commentary live tweeting episode to Home Alone, which has its 30th anniversary on November 16th. Oh my God. So this will be our... (laughs) 
intro into holiday movies. I think we're going to end up doing another holiday pod episode. I think we both really love this movie. Yeah. I watch it every year. It's it's a classic. It's so good. Like I, I really do love it so much. And I'm so excited, I think, to try out this new style pod episode and watch this with you. It's going to be so funny. I will try my best I'm not like to quote it the whole way through. Laughing. Yeah. This will be very interesting. I don't know. It could be totally cracked of like us watching at the same time time offering commentary <laughs> quotes facts how we feel reactions yeah. yeah so watch along with us during this episode i think it's going to be so much fun and thank you everyone for listening today as we discuss the best picture nominees from 1994 another great year in oscar history and thank you so much for listening stay safe wear your masks thanks everyone we'll see you next week for home alone stay safe and wear your masks